we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. We need to talk about the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights and the Venice Commission of the Council of Europe. Europe is larger than the EU and a European framework aiming at preserving basic rights and freedoms as well as rule of law safeguards has been in place for 70 years, precisely this November, the European Convention on Human Rights. Today, we take a deeper look at the convention and at the institutions that work to enforce it, the European Court of Human Rights and the Venice Commission of the Council of Europe. Are they capable of adding another layer of human rights and rule of law protection to the European legal framework? What kind of support do those institutions need in order to be able to fulfill their task? And how is their status today, 70 years after the European Convention on Human Rights has been signed? This is what we will discuss in this week's episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law with our fantastic guests. Basak Charlie is Professor of International Law at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin and Co-Director of the school's Center for Fundamental Rights. Angelika Nussberger is Professor of Constitutional Law, International Law and Comparative Law at the University of Cologne. She's a member of the Venice Commission and has been a judge at the European Court of Human Rights from 2011 to 2019 and the court's Vice President from 2017. To 2019. Thomas Markert has until recently been Director and Secretary of the Council of Europe Venice Commission. I'm Lennart Kogart, a member of Verfassungsblock's editorial team. Welcome to all of you and thank you for being here. Professor Nussberger, let's start by taking a look at the Council of Europe. What kind of institution is that and what role does the European Convention on Human Rights take there? What is the human rights and rule of law framework of the Council of Europe? The, the Council of Europe is an international organization that was founded about 70 years ago. It's one of those famous uh, institutions that were founded after the war, quite soon after the war, in order to start a new uh, international cooperation. Uh, it was inspired by speeches like George's speech in Zurich, where he was uh, reflecting even about the uh, United States of Europe. So this was, uh, the, uh, these were the ideals behind to really have a new start for all of Europe. And this new start should be based on human rights and rule of law that was in the center. That is why, um, after the statute of the Council of Europe, the very first uh, instrument, legal instrument that was elaborated was the European Convention on Human Rights. And uh, this is absolutely the basic, um, the fundament of uh, the Council of Europe. So uh, whoever wants to be a member, every state wants to be a member of the Council of Europe has to ratify Uh, the European Convention of Human Rights. So you cannot be a member of the Council of Europe without being also a member of the European Convention of Human Rights. So in this sense, it's really an, um, one of the frameworks uh, that embraces all the European countries, stretching from, uh, from Le Havre 
until Krasnoyarsk in, in Russia. So uh, for 47 countries establishing uh, uh, certain clear uh, standards for human rights protection and for safeguarding basic principles of rule of law. Mr. Markert, I would like to follow up on that by talking about the Venice Commission for a bit. What is the Venice Commission and what does it have to do with the rule of law? Well, thank you for inviting me to present the contribution of the Venice Commission furthering the rule of law in Europe. The Venice Commission is part of the Council of Europe. We just heard about the Council of Europe from Mrs. Nussberger. It is the advisory body of the Council of Europe on constitutional matters. It's a commission composed of independent members. Its members are appointed by governments, but then act in full independence. Most of its members are either academics or senior judges. We also have some practicing lawyers or politicians with a legal background. This has as a consequence that many perspectives enter the work of the Venice Commission. It was established in 1990 and then quite logically, it focused mainly on assisting the reform process in Central and Eastern Europe. And indeed, in Central and Eastern Europe, the Venice Commission is very well known and has a high standing. And this gives legitimacy and credibility to its opinions. Now, how does the Commission work? Its most important task is to give legal opinions on draft legislation or on adopted legislation in the wider area of constitutional law. And this includes, especially of interest here, all legislation pertaining to the organization of the judiciary, the prosecution service, or more rarely the bar. The commission provides its opinions quite quickly in a few weeks or months, and its opinions are not binding. One can say, I think, that it is complementary to the European Court of Human Rights. The Commission does not decide individual cases, but it gives opinion on legislation, which may be at the basis of the individual case, which later reaches the court. So the main idea is preventive. If legislation is good, there should be fewer violations of human rights. So its opinions are not binding. That's, of course, the difference with the court, but they tend to be largely followed, I think, mainly for two reasons. One reason is the high reputation the Commission has, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. And another reason is that the political bodies, like the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, but most importantly, the European Union, tend to encourage states to follow the opinions of the Venice Commission. Therefore, especially candidate states for membership in the European Union are fully aware that if they want to avoid problems in the accession procedure, it's in their interest to largely follow the Venice Commission opinions. It's more difficult to ensure that its opinions are followed in countries which are not really or not seriously interested in membership in the European Union, such as Russia or at the moment Turkey, or which are already members, such as Poland and Hungary. What is important to note is that the Venice Commission never provides opinions at its own initiative. It only acts upon request. These requests most often come from the member state confer concerned. Therefore, the main modus operandi of the Venice Commission is to cooperate 
with the member states governments. But from the very beginning, the Venice Commission could also provide opinions at the request of Council of Europe organs, such as Parliamentary Assembly or international organizations, such as the European Union. And in this manner, the Venice Commission can also interfere in legislation which the country concerned would rather like to keep out of international scrutiny. These opinions are, of course, the most delicate and sensitive ones. In addition to such opinions, the Venice Commission can also adopt texts of a general nature. For example, the Venice Commission adopted reports on judicial independence, and I think most important for our discussion, a report and a checklist on the rule of law. Because we felt the need to bring together the different traditions of the rule of law and the Rechtsstaat in Europe, and to fill the notion of the rule of law with concrete content and thus make it easier to use in specific cases. The notion of the rule of law is often used, but its content is not always clear, and this can lead to accusations that the concept is used arbitrarily against specific countries. Therefore, it is very important to base any criticism of the situation of the rule of law in a country on predetermined standards and to use these standards consistently. Finally, the Venice Commission has also strongly supported and initiated networking among constitutional courts. This supports independence of especially the younger constitutional courts. And I think this is also an important contribution to the rule of law in Europe. Thank you very much. Um, Professor Charlie, let's get into specifics and look at one country as an example. Turkey is a member of the Council of Europe and a member that has rule of law issues. To what extent is the European Convention on Human Rights the law of the land there? Thank you. Um, thank you, Leonard, for, um, for this question. Uh, when we look at the 47 Council of Europe member states, and I know the question is about Turkey, and to, to answer your question, I think there are two ways of going about this. Um, the, the first one is to look at uh, the numbers and figures uh, to, to be able to understand uh, whether the convention principles are effectively applied in any jurisdiction, in this case, Turkey. And also the second one is to maybe look at attitudes, um, you know, discussions in the, in the judicial culture, um, in the political culture about uh, the convention itself. So if we look at uh, your question from the perspective of numbers, uh, we find some important, uh, you know, we will notice some important things. Uh, the first one is Turkey was a member of the Council of uh, Europe and the Convention right from the beginning, from the 1950s, but it has accepted um, the compulsory jurisdiction, uh, which uh, Judge Nussberger explained that this is uh, now a sine qua non for anyone, uh, only in 1990. And the first case uh, became final against Turkey in 1993. So Turkey has been both an old hand and a new hand in relation uh, to the Convention. But despite this sort of both an old and a new engagement, if you will, uh, the country with the highest number of uh, violation judgments delivered across all 47 uh, member states is Turkey. So uh, 3,645 violation judgments have been delivered in relation to Turkey in this past um, two decades. And uh, quite a like, uh, so these are judgments and a huge number of these are violation judgments. And if we look at the sort of the range of, um, of issues, uh, rule of law and human rights protection issues, 
uh, Turkey has a very high number of cases concerning right to life, uh, inhuman and degrading treatment, lack of effective investigation, what is called procedural obligation cases. But perhaps most significantly, Turkey has uh, almost um, half of the freedom of expression violations across all um, Council of Europe member states, a very significant chunk of peaceful assembly uh, violations as well. So these numbers um, indeed would tell us a story about whether the ECHR is, um, is the law of the land. What the numbers also show is that there's a very active legal community taking a, a huge number of cases to the European Court of Human Rights. And there are over 10,000 cases, I think, currently pending before a judicial formation. But beyond these numbers, uh, it's helpful to look at um, how these uh, over 3,000 judgments are implemented in Turkey or in any jurisdiction. And if we look at the implementation rate in relation to Turkey, and here I would refer everyone to um, the execution website of the Council of Europe, as well as to uh, the website of the European Implementation Network, a civil society that monitors implementation, uh, we see that a vast number of these judgments, violation judgments delivered in relation to Turkey are not implemented. Um, and a significant number of these non-implemented judgments are what are called leading judgments, which means that they underline systemic or repetitive issues that will require changing legislation or changing um, the way that the judiciaries decide on a certain matter. And perhaps more alarmingly, uh, over 60% of these judgments have been pending implementation for over a decade. So these numbers are things that we can look at uh, to, as I said, to any jurisdiction. Uh, we can understand you know, whether the, the court's um, case law and the convention is well embedded. But when we look at the numbers of the cases that go to the court and then the implementation record, I think it's not very easy to say that the convention is deeply entrenched and that uh, the legislature or the judiciary is highly responsive to the judgments uh, that has been received. In terms of attitudes as well, I think uh, more and more so, uh, we, we see that uh, sort of a, a non-compliance sort of culture, uh, very easy uh, sort of violations that could be very easily uh, prevented at the first instant court level in particular, we see, a, I think, a significant increase um, uh, especially at the first instant courts uh, in, in Turkey. And there is a lot of uh, expectation from the Turkish Constitutional Court to act as a corrective. And you will also notice that there is not only a very big backlog of cases before the Strasbourg Court, but also before uh, the Turkish Constitutional Court. So maybe let's leave it there uh, for, the, for this question. Thank you very much. I would like to stay with Turkey for a minute because I think it's... Um, a good example of a member state of the Council of Europe that faces a, a huge rule of law crisis. Professor Nussberger, the European Court of Human Rights has refused to decide cases that involved civil servants that were dismissed by the Turkish government, stating that the applicants had failed to exhaust all domestic remedies. This has been criticized as a failure to provide justice for post-coup victims. Would you say that that is the case? I can understand the criticism very well. And uh, it's true, the whole mechanism was made in order to prevent states from falling back into 
uh, non-democratic systems. So that was a main issue when the convention mechanism was set up. And what had happened in Turkey with the a huge amount of civil servants being uh, sacked or being uh, put into prison. That was exactly the moment when uh, everybody expected um, uh, the, the court to be the one helping in uh, coming over the crisis, in, in finding a way out of the crisis. Uh, but at the same time, the court has developed uh, approaches um, to how to solve cases for all the 47 uh, member states and uh, exhaustion of domestic remedies is indeed a precondition. Now there is a real dilemma because uh, the jurisprudence says, uh, based on the principle of subsidiarity, that uh, it's always necessary to exhaust domestic remedies as long as there is a domestic remedy to exhaust. And the court has developed a clear jurisprudence explaining when it's not necessary because uh, the remedy is obviously not efficient and, and it doesn't make sense. It's just a loss of time to try out something where it's clear that it will not work. In Turkey, the situation is difficult because uh, there are remedies. Uh, it is possible to run through uh, the instances to arrive at the Constitutional Court, but it's clear that it lasts for a long time. And it's also clear that the persons who need um, help from the court would need it immediately and would not want to wait for many years. And it's also clear that the success rate is low but uh, it's not zero. And the jurisprudence of the court is quite strict uh, in uh, expecting applicants to try out what is possible as long as the chance is not zero. I know very well the criticism in Turkey that um, it, it uh, sort of closed the doors for those who are most in need of their protection of human rights. But as I understand it, and there I think Thomas will also be, held, uh, be, be able to, to intervene and to add uh, information, uh, the Council of Europe uh, was, after the, after the uh, attempted coup d'etat, it, um, uh, it wanted Turkey to set up a commission to deal with those cases. And as I understand it, I... Uh, but Turkey set up such a commission and this commission is uh, looking at the cases. So it would be as the court is also part of the, um, of the Council of Europe, it would be sort of contradictory on the one hand to ask for a commission to be set up to deal with the cases, on the other hand, not to accept it as a, as a real remedy, as an efficient remedy. There have been cases, by now there have been uh, quite a lot of uh, cases decided on these issues and all those cases went through all the instances. It's true, as uh, my colleague said, that um, uh, many of those who went through the system up to the very end, uh, they um, got the judgment from the uh, European court and then the judgments are not implemented. So. That is also true, but, but that is something uh, where the court cannot, um, the court itself cannot react directly. The, the non-implementation uh, of the court is a question of the 
uh, execution of the judgments which lays in the hands of the Committee of Ministers and not the court itself. But just to repeat, I perfectly understand the disappointment uh, with, the, uh, with the time spent um, in, in front of Turkish instances with not much hope before being able to come to the European Court. At the same time, uh, the court has difficulties in applying different standards for Turkey and saying, well, if there is a 20% or a 10% success rate, that would, would already be sufficient to say it's not necessary to try the remedy out. So this is a real dilemma where a court is faced with such a situation where it has to, to apply the same standards to all 47 states. If the court uh, accepted to say, well, for Turkey, we don't trust in the, in the efficient working of this um, court system, it would be really difficult to accept Turkey as a member state. Because if you, if you argue uh, from the outset that, um, uh, that the, the court system is not functional, the whole system doesn't function anymore because the court is never meant to take over the whole, uh, the whole work, but it has to have this cooperation. So that is why uh, we had all those inadmissibility, uh, inadmissibility decisions handed down by the second chamber. But let me stress, uh, we also had by now quite a few quite important cases showing the clear, um, the clear uh, findings of violations in these cases. Thank you very much, um, Professor Charlie, on that. Thank you. I, I just wanted to come in briefly on, on this notion of a dilemma that um, Angel Kanusberger just underlined. And I, I do agree with, with this. There's, there's definitely a, a dilemma here, but perhaps there's also another way of, of thinking about this dilemma rather than is it a special treatment um, versus sort of a, a, an equal treatment when it comes to exhaustion of domestic domestic remedies rule. Um, and I think the, the dilemma can be understood in, in a broader sense about how the European Court of Human Rights may uh, be able to deal with, um, with jurisdictions, with countries that are uh, facing a very serious um, rule of law crisis versus those countries who, who are not. And it's, it's, I, I think that it's, it's a genuinely difficult question to say that you know, there is a serious rule of law crisis in a, in a jurisdiction. And of course, uh, I hope we will come to the Venice Commission a bit more because Venice Commission has been doing quite a lot of work uh, precisely uh, on this issue. And here, I think the dilemma is also, uh, you know, it has to do with if the court takes a principled decision and say, we have to understand the exhaustion of domestic remedies rule differently when we understand the situation to be that of a rule of law crisis, it can be in any jurisdiction. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking more generally here. Um, then, of course, uh, this would flood a, a very, very overburdened uh, European uh, Court of Human Rights with a significant amount of cases. And I think, um, let me correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but everyone thinks that it's impossible for the court to, to take this bold step and handle it. So I think the dilemma is about you know, whether this court will collapse um, under under a massive uh, case uh, caseload that it could embrace, and whether it takes a more principled stance on 
exhaustion of domestic remedies principle uh, when it identifies a systemic uh, rule of law crisis, perhaps with the help of the Venice Commission, as it doesn't really help, it doesn't anymore receive any help from something called a commission, which this court used to have uh, to carry out fact-finding uh, missions that was pre-1998 uh, court that some will remember. Uh, just on this point, I would not be so very nervous about the case law. It's true, we speak about thousands and thousands of cases. That is true, but the court has a very good mechanism to deal with these uh, huge amounts of cases. You can always use the pilot procedure. And many of these cases are very, very similar. I mean, people have been have lost their jobs under similar conditions with similar reproaches. So uh, the court can group them together and what we have done in other cases, you can group thousands of cases and just take out one and uh, judge one case and then uh, uh, the court has spoken. The problem here is the same. If we do that, if we accept it, then it goes back to the Turkish, uh, to the Turkish authorities, and they have to implement the pilot judgment. And then you are sort of you have gone round a circle, but you are at the same point. If you have a state that is not willing to cooperate, you will always run against the wall, whatever you do, even if you hand down. Uh, judgments that are binding and they are not implemented, you do not get where you want to get. If you hand down a pilot judgment, you need the cooperation and you need the cooperation in order for the, for the mechanism of exhaustion of remedies for, for functioning. So that is the real problem. And, and um, it's also, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, the court has a real success story and it, it's, um, I think we can all be proud of these 70 years of the convention that we celebrate right now, but uh, it can it cannot really do anything against a state that is not willing to abide by the most basic principles. That is the problem of the of such a system. Such a system always needs some sort of goodwill and some sort of cooperation. I thank you very much. Um, that leads perfectly to my next question, um, which is that in the past, um, there have been attempts by governments to exercise a pressure on the Council of Europe and its institutions by threatening to or actually withdrawing financial contributions uh, for a, a certain amount of time. At the same time, countries that are members of the Council of Europe are places where alarming trends of authoritarian backsliding may be witnessed how would you judge the council's efficiency uh, how would you judge the council's efficiency as an institution taking into account um, the different institutions it holds and their possibilities um, to to react to that um, mr market would you like to say something from the perspective of, of the venice commission so i think uh, one has to be conscious that the Council of Europe is an organization of sovereign states. It's not a supranational organization. And even the European Union as a supranational organization has some problems bringing its member states to fully comply with all the standards. So I think one cannot expect the Council of Europe to do miracles and govern instead of the country concerned. As Ms. Lisbeth has said before, 
there's a need for a minimum willingness of state concern to cooperate in achieving this, these goals. That's a bit the basis of the system. The countries work together to improve the situation. The system is not destined for countries which do not want to be democracies respecting the rule of law and human rights. The court, I think, is very valuable. It can complement the national judiciary, but it can replace the national judiciary. In Turkey, we have a bit of a problem that at least the ordinary judiciary is maybe in such a situation that it should be replaced by it's not one court in, in Strasbourg, which can replace all the ordinary courts in, in Turkey. And still, I think the Council of Europe is useful for Turkey. If we look at the case law of Constitutional Court, which is the only court in Turkey which still tries to somehow protect fundamental rights, I think it very much relies on Council of Europe standards and etc. The Council of Europe, the Venice Commission has pointed out all the different flaws in the Turkish judicial system, in the legal system, in the constitution, etc. At the moment, there is no willingness to follow these opinions. But I think in some years, the situation will change in Turkey. And in the end, that's what we want. It should be the Turkish people in the end deciding they have had enough of this and they go back to European standards. It cannot be imposed from abroad. The question would be, should we exclude Turkey? But then of course, we would rather make more difficult the task of the lawyers of the control court. And if there is a slight change in Turkey, then it would be much more complicated to intervene. We should not forget that, that some years ago, we were working quite well with Turkey in order to improve the situation. So it's not said that this situation will remain as it is now for a very long period. Thank you very much, um, Professor Charlie. Thank you. I, I just wanted to follow up on um, thinking about, you know, when, when, we, when we talk about the Council of Europe, we're, we're talking about very different institutions. Um, you've started, um, we've started talking about the Venice Commission, and of course there's the European uh, Court uh, of Human Rights, and then there's the Committee of Ministers, there's the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and there's also the, the Commissioner, the European Commissioner for Human Rights. So uh, based on my observations across these very different institutions, uh, one of the things that I find is that um, all these institutions haven't been able to speak in, in one voice <clears throat> concerning the rule of law backsliding in various jurisdictions. We can, we can understand this for the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. You can say these are made up of national parliamentarians and this is a deeply political uh, process, so that's very normal. You know, this is a, this is a different kind of a setting. Uh, perhaps we could also say it um, uh, for um, for the for the committee of ministers. So the most I think outspoken uh, agent uh, or, or the organ in the Council of Europe about these issues have been the European Commissioner for Human Rights, especially in their reports, uh, comparative reports uh, on on these issues in various jurisdictions. And I think the Venice Commission, as well, has made uh, some of the most important interventions. But but as we've just talked about somebody has to ask an opinion to the Venice Commission. Venice Commission doesn't sit down and write these reports. So it's really kind of waiting for a request for it to be able to seize the situation and, and to be able to assess it. Now, in terms of the, I think the, the record in a way, comparatively speaking, 
the organization that hasn't really been able to um, come into uh, the rule of law crisis or backsliding, however you want to define it in Europe, has been the European Court of Human Rights. But there are some structural reasons. You know, it, it's just not that quick. It's just not easy for them to, to take any case that shows up uh, in their computers. Uh, there is a serious kind of backlog. So the court has been coming into these issues. Either it hasn't arrived to these issues. A lot of these contentious issues haven't really made to the merit stage. So these issues are urgent, but you can't read any judgments about them. Or as we've just discussed, they are being declared inadmissible by the court uh, based on a particular reading of the exhaustion rule. Or when there's a judgment, they come so late in those countries uh, where there's rule of law issues, things unfold so quickly. Every week or every other week, there's a new development. And then you have some sort of an archaic Strasbourg judgment where everyone's like, okay, <laughs> that's nice, you know, what's going to happen? So in a way, we've also seen that the machinery of the court is really not able to give any urgent uh, responses. But there's also, I think, a secondary issue. It's not about just whether the response is urgent or not, but what do you say? Uh, and I think this is, um, this, is the, this is the thing. Of course, the court or any of the organs can't coerce compliance with anything, but has the Council of Europe organs produced some really good outputs? So this is maybe a question uh, we can ask, not what happens to that output, but whether the quality of the output um, is good enough. Thank you very much, um, Professor Nussberger. Well, I would agree that the court is not an institution that can react immediately, like as, for example, a politician who can comment on something that is happening immediately, or even a parliament can pass a resolution immediately. That is not uh, for the court. Uh, the court has one way of uh, immediate reaction, and that is applying Rule 39, but these, this is only for cases about uh, a direct threat to life or health, an immediate threat to life and health, and it's only a, a, a temporary solution. It's not a final uh, word on a case, uh, but this urgent way of reaction is there. But uh, of course, I agree with you that uh, the court comes with its answers often very late after the questions have been asked. Nevertheless, I think the answers are uh, still valuable when they come. And sometimes it's also quite good to have a little bit of time uh, delay uh, in all, because then uh, the emotions are a little bit lower and the answer and the discussion can be, the discussion on the basis of law can be more solid. Let me just give you the example of uh, the Ukrainian uh, government uh, in the situation when Yanukovych took over power and uh, the, the government before had been Yula Timoshenko and Yula Timoshenko and almost all of her ministers were put into prison under different charges. And when I was working for the fifth section of the court for a certain moment of time, we had more or less all the former ministers of the government on our table and we were working on those cases one by one. It might have been not uh, an immediate um, help in the Ukrainian crisis, but first they knew that the cases are being dealt with in Strasbourg. That was already an issue. And second, they got an answer for all those cases, seeing, uh, and, and we analyzed very thoroughly every aspect of those cases. 
So it seems to me that the court is able to give answers for, uh, I mean, for something that has happened in the past, but that is still valid for the future for a similar situation. And if you observe the courts, the de development of the court's jurisprudence, the uh, mounting difficulties with rule of law issues and with states which do not only have problems, but really go consciously against um, rule of law and act in an arbitrary manner, they are faced with the fact that the court applies more and more often Article 18. And Article 18 is sort of the, the most, uh, most clear, the clearest message the court can give about something going in the wrong direction in a state. So there is a possibility uh, to react. I think it's still helpful, even if you have to, <laughs> everybody has to understand uh, that the court is not an institution uh, with an immediate response to what happens. And perhaps just one last sentence, it acts together with the others. So the commissioner, is somebody who can who can make a statement immediately, not the court. So th these are also uh, it's it's a division of roles uh, within the Council of Europe uh, that is also quite helpful. And Thomas Market has also explained that the the Venice Commission uh, can adopt urgent opinions. They can react quite quickly, quite quickly. Sometimes they can adopt uh, um, opinions. Uh, on the not on the spot but always based on on a profound analysis but within a period of time when it's still when this crisis is still going on thank you very much um i think the power of the european court of human rights relies to a large extent on the binding force of the european convention on human rights and that has become a policy topic in a number of member states uh, such as switzerland um, many critics claim that the European Court of Human Rights has gone too far in interfering in domestic policy. Do they have a point or is that a weird understanding of human rights protection, um, Professor Charlie? Thank you. I mean, of course, it's probably not just Switzerland, right? I mean, it's, uh, I mean one, way of, one way of approaching this, uh, this issue is to think about it as being very much in the nature of having established international supervision uh, of human rights legislation, law policy, judicial decisions in a national jurisdiction. So this is a multi-level uh, order. And of course, there are always frictions. It's um, inevitable that some judgments of the court um, will not be liked. Uh, they will be protested uh, on uh, democratic legitimacy grounds for micromanagement grounds. Um, or just people can say we don't just like the judgment, right? So this is this is something there. But the question is whether um, this court has has really really gone uh, too far in exactly these charges of not respecting democratic processes, or um, really micromanaging, uh, which uh, as we've discussed, that you know it really doesn't see its its job uh, to do this. I think there might be um, you know some some cases here and there. Uh, that one can reasonably point out and to say that you know, that wasn't really necessary or that wasn't really Strasbourg's place to um, to talk about these issues. But I'm not so sure that we can really make a blanket um, statement about this court 
you know, increasingly going into, into areas uh, that it shouldn't go. This also has to do with uh, international human rights law interpretations being very dynamic. And, uh, you know, it's not that you're interpreting a very particularly specified detailed legislation, but literally a couple of words like what is inhuman, what is degrading, and what is torture. And these are very much part of the dynamic interpretation questions that we're all facing. So I um, find these objections, uh, you know, to, to a very, to some extent understandable, but I also think that they, are, they have been very much inflated uh, as uh, massive objections of attacking the court and the convention, precisely because what we've just talked about, uh, the court cannot order anything to anybody. It can't cancel or strike out any legislation. It completely depends on uh, cooperation uh, from so many different actors uh, to work through. So. If you ask me, I think the amount of criticism of such a weak court as an institutional structure has been overinflated and um, and I think over harsh and uh, a little worrying for um, the future of human rights protections in Europe in areas ranging from migration uh, policy um, to um, addressing um, rights of vulnerable uh, populations. Well, thank you very much. Um... My final question for the three of you is how likely do you think it is that the court will recover anytime soon from its currently damaged position and what should we expect of the court in the rule of law struggles to come? Um, Mr. Markert, would you like to start? I think it's not quite correct to say that the court now has a damaged position. If we compare the situation a bit more long term, I think we have seen a huge expansion of the case law of the court and now maybe the pendulum is swinging back a bit but still the court remains in quite a strong position but it's true there's increasing criticism this criticism i think is also a bit natural as we know this from national constitutional courts in germany now the bundesverfassungsgericht is supreme in public opinion but in earlier decades there have been chancellors strongly criticizing the constitutional court so it should not be surprising that the european court of human rights if it gets involved in many politically sensitive issues is also being criticized and my feeling is also the court is attentive to such criticism and sometimes is also ready to be more coarse in its case law for example if you think about the crucifix decisions also in the migration area i think it isn't such conflicts are natural and we are a reasonable solution has to be found. What should not happen is that the position of the court as such is being undermined. That is a red line which should not be crossed. Thank you. Um, Professor Nussberger. Uh, I would also not uh, speak about a damaged position as you <laughs> called it in your question. I think the position of the court is better now than it has been. Uh, there was a period of time just before the referendum in Switzerland, when we fear that Switzerland might leave the convention system. At the same time, Russia uh, stopped paying uh, the contributions to the Council of Europe. So this was a situation, and Britain had uh, threatened to leave the convention. So in my view, a few years ago, when all these um, uh, three countries and uh, others as well uh, really had uh, 
almost institutionalized their criticism by going certain ways of, of leaving the convention based on the referendum, etc. The position of the court was weaker than it is now. Uh, it was very good that in Switzerland, the referendum showed a huge support for the court, despite all the criticism, and that strengthened the position of the court. Um, looking into the future and uh, the contribution of the court for strengthening rule of law, I think there are also good signs. The court has handed down very important judgments concerning independence of the judiciary, like, for example, Volkov versus Ukraine, where it has set uh, basic standards, by the way, we, uh, also referring to the Venice Commission. And both, uh, uh, and these standards, both of the Venice Commission and of the court, were integrated in the report of the European Commission that we have read just uh, a few weeks ago about rule of law in Europe. So there you find it bundled together uh, the approach of the Venice Commission, of the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court in, in Luxembourg bundled together to, uh, to have a, a tool in the hand to measure rule of law in all the 27 countries of uh, the EU. And that is for me uh, something we can see as a positive sign that we come together in defining uh, standards that we accept. So I think the court can and will continue on its path shaping these standards. And there, I, I would not be so pessimistic as you might be. Thank you very much. And um, Professor Charlie. Okay, so I think, um, you know, the word damaged, I think, attracted um, concern or, you know, like damaged, it's a very heavy, heavy kind of word to use. Um, so, and I think I, I agree with this, but I, I uh, that it is a heavy word to use, but I must say, Leonard, I agree with the sentiment, maybe not the word that you use, that it's not a damaged court, but um, I find this court to be a little lost. Uh, this is maybe how I would put it. And you can say, what do you mean? You know, how could a, how could a human rights court be lost? Um, this court has had a very tough time uh, in the past few decades. It has been, as you highlighted, heavily criticized, attacked by um, many judges, uh, very respectable judges, a lot of parliaments and politicians, and there's been a lot of push for the deepening of subsidiarity in its uh, procedural and substantive case law. And at the same time, the court has found itself with a process of deepening of autocratization. This is what political scientists call it in the middle of Europe. And this has started uh, back in the 1990s and it's deepening uh, day by day. So it's a, it's a tough place for the court to be. And I think it got a little lost in addressing these um, calls for subsidiarity. Sometimes it gave in a bit too much uh, to some of its uh, more old uh, members. And then it started doing the same uh, for, um, for its autocratic uh, members and so on. So I think this is the word that I will use uh, for this court. But it's, it's trying to find, find its way. But um, uh, I think this is a time to really systematically think about how it will deal with these competing expectations on the court, both to be really respecting subsidiarity uh, for its well-established democracies and also uh, you know, capable of doing hard talk uh, with its uh, auto autocratic uh, member states. Um, so yeah, maybe not damaged, but a slightly lost court, I would say.
Thank you very much, Professor Charlie, Professor Nussberger, and Mr. Market for talking with us about the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights, and the Venice Commission. And thanks to all of you for listening to We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law. We appreciate your feedback using the hashtag LawRules on social media or on Verfassung's blog. And please join us again next week for an episode on the European Court of Justice. See you next Wednesday.